1: Hello, Truth and Justice listeners, and welcome back to Season 5. It's been almost two years since we put our investigation into the forgotten West Memphis 3 case on hold. For those of you who have been anxiously awaiting our return to Season 5, I've got to warn you, we're not jumping all the way back in yet. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be sharing with you a couple of exclusive interviews that I held back during Season 5. If you haven't been keeping up, this is what's been going on. The reason that we had to pause Season 5 is because the TV network Oxygen offered us a deal to take our investigation to the small screen. Last year, I spent three months filming our upcoming docuseries titled The Forgotten West Memphis 3. The show was all wrapped, it's edited, completed, and now we're just waiting for Oxygen to air it. The word on the street is that the show will launch this summer. When the TV show airs, that is when we will fully shift back into our active investigation of the West Memphis 3 case, and Season 5 will resume on the podcast. But in the meantime, we're currently between Season 7 and 8, and I thought this would be a great time to share these interviews with you. I had to hold them back originally because I thought that the interviews were going to be used on the TV series. But as it turns out, that wasn't the case. So... In today's episode, you're going to hear an exclusive interview that I conducted with Damian Eccles in 2018. When we first launched into Season 5, I flew out to New York and sat down and had this chat with Damian in his Harlem apartment. Now, if you're new to Truth and Justice and you just popped in because you wanted to hear an interview with Damian Eccles, welcome and thanks for listening. If you're really into this case, I would highly recommend scrolling through our episodes back to Season 5. There you'll find over 60 hours of West Memphis 3 content. Two years ago we published 33 episodes as well as 33 follow-up or Q&A episodes on the case. And now that we've got all the housekeeping out of the way, welcome back to season 5. After a short break for our sponsors, this is my interview with Damien Eccles. So, you know, we were talking about your your art and stuff like that. I'd like to, to hear from you, like, to go back to the very beginning of this case. The reason that you were brought into this thing to begin with was, you know, they, they decided that this was a satanic cult crime scene. And, of course, it wasn't. But aside from that... What was your religion? Because even if it was, you weren't a
0: Satanist. No. Uh, Ever since I was a child, it's kind of hard to describe because of things like Harry Potter and things like this. But Uh My first love since the time I was a child has always been uh, Western ceremonial magic. And and it's spelled with a K, M-A-G-I-C-K. And whenever you see it spelled with a K, what it means is it's kind of like an amalgamation of... Gnostic Christianity, esoteric Judaism, uh, a lot of the energy circulation practices of like ancient Chinese Taoism, things of that nature. It's about uh, sort of... Really what it all comes down to is trying to balance all of the... We call them energies but they're sort of like aspects of your unconscious mind, your subconscious mind, things like that that are really active in our lives and in our psyches that a lot of times we don't even realize the effect that they're having like in our behavior, in our thinking process, all that sort of thing. So, I guess in a lot of ways, it's also very similar to psychology. There's a um, lot of that in there. But really, I fell in love with, with Ceremonial Magic when I was... The first time I ever saw it, I was probably... I was younger than seven. And... You know, nobody in my family really reads. Nobody goes to school. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a ninth grade education. I dropped out of school when I was in ninth grade, and that's the most of anybody in my family. Oh, you know, wow. If you look through my whole family tree, I doubt you'll ever find someone with a high school diploma. The only thing that they really read, my grandmother used to read these papers that were like the National Enquirer, but even worse, you know, it's, <laughs> it's ones about like half alligator, half man found. In this small town down by the river, right, yeah. something like that. And she didn't read it like in an ironic way. She looked at it like, okay, this is some shit we need to keep an eye out for. You know, <laughs> I so. but I Watch out for that. <laughs> Exactly. But I remember looking in the back of one of those and seeing an ad that said something along the lines of, you know, want to learn magic? Send five ninety five today and we'll send you this book. And, of course, I didn't even know what the hell magic was at that point. To me, at that point in my life, I probably would have thought it was some sort of Harry Potter thing. Right. Wave a wand and say a word and something's going to happen. But I took it to her. And, of course, you know, we were dirt poor. There were times when when we were growing up when, you know, my mother and grandmother both would have to do things like collect aluminum cans off the side of the road just to, Mm -hmm. you know, buy breakfast cereal. So, they, you know, $6, even $6 for a book was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. But... I remember seeing that and, and, you know, of course, running and begging my grandmother, can I please have this? Will you get this for me? And of course, the answer was no. But I remember thinking, even at that age, if you could do magic, keep in mind, I didn't know what that meant precisely. I just right. knew this must be an amazing thing. If you could do that, then why does anything else matter? And, and I fell in love with it. Uh, when I became a teenager, I discovered Neo-paganism, modern neo-paganism, uh, the the biggest faction of that is what people now call Wicca. Okay. And it's sort of really Wicca is like really, really watered down ceremonial magic. Some of these concepts and practices and everything else in Western ceremonial magic are incredibly complica- complicated. They take, you know, months, even years of study and practice to, to master just because there's a lot of it was written by people in the 1800s. So, it's written in a very dry, very boring sort of way. Well, what the people who wrote the books that you'll now find on Wicca did was sort of take these really complicated processes and make them so that any moron could understand them. Mm -hmm. So, when I found that, I was like, oh my God, this is great. But still, it, it wasn't The same thing, you know, I wanted the real source of it for, so for me, that's always been the tradition that I practice, uh, is, was an order in the late 1800s in England, in London called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And the reason it's called that is because everything within ceremonial magic revolves around the sun. You know, the sun is the source of, of all life in this world. Mm -hmm. So the sun is looked at as being an embodiment of like, uh, Christ consciousness, you know, that same thing that gives life meaning, gives life purpose. Uh, and I just wanted that. I didn't want the watered-down version. Mm-hmm. I wanted the complicated version. And still, to this day, you know, I do it. Uh, there are practices that I do every single day, no matter what, that, you know, like I said, I've only been out for about six years now. When I first got out, it completely and absolutely destroyed me. This was one of the things that was like an anchor for me, something that I could... Hold on to, focus on, and keep myself from just completely disintegrating. So, not Satanism. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I always say Satanists aren't very—they're uh, not even very creative or inventive. You know, they take right. everybody else's stuff and turn it upside down.
1: Right, and that's so, sort of the depth of it. So, so this thing was exactly that upside down from the very beginning. Exactly. You know, and and everybody—the case is widely published. Everybody knows the story, but. How do you think, or why do you think that you were targeted? because you know there were three of you, but, but really, going through the case file, you specifically mm-hmm. were targeted very early on. Mm-hmm. So if you could speak to that as far as why you think that happened or what the, what the process was that that led to that? I think a lot of it was just due to the fact that
0: I did not fit in in you know this town that was it was not only incredibly you know like right- wing fundamentalist. You know, I can't even articulate like the the mindset of. I mean, keep in mind if you practice Buddhism in West Memphis, you're probably a Satanist.
1: Right. If you're a Especially Hindu, in 1993. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: If you're a Hindu, you're probably a Satanist. Mm-hmm. You don't know it. You're being right. you know misled by demons who are posing as the Buddha or whatever. <laughs> right. Right. You know that's that's how they actually believe. Uh-huh. So, and that's things like that. Imagine when you start talking about magic, then uh-huh. that's like a whole new level. You know, things like that combined with, uh, just the way I look. You know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. Um, I've just always worn black ever since I was really young. It's just what feels, it makes me feel safe. It makes me feel uh, like I have a security blanket with me all the time. They took it to mean I don't have a soul. Because all of my clothes are of course black.
1: Not. With, with the, black well,
0: the prosecutor even actually said that. Yeah. You know, he said during the, the closing arguments, it's one of the few things that I remember, was uh, he was telling the jury how, you know, you add up all these things, you take them apart and look at them separately, like the fact of the music that he listens to and the clothes he wear and the art that he had hanging on his walls. You know, each of those things doesn't mean anything in itself,
1: but you put them all together and you're looking at someone who has no soul. As you're describing that to me, I'm looking at my wife sitting over there petting the cat that you rescued out of the house. <laughs> the, the little kitten that you rescued, the soulless man <laughs> rescued the kitten. <laughs> so, so you were different and, and you, you wore black, but still, how does that get from, you know, there's, there's three, three dead boys with no kind of evidence to Damien Eccles. there's a lot, lot more to it, actually. Uh, Most people,
0: I don't think most people, even who have seen the documentaries and everything else, understand the full depth of the corruption and everything else that was going on in West Memphis. There used to be a, a juvenile police officer who would come through our neighborhood and pick up teenage boys and say, either you give me a blowjob or you're going to jail. I won't say what his name was. He eventually went to prison in Florida for stealing money from the police department. Uh, but he had a couple of other people who worked alongside of him and these were some of the most corrupt, despicable people I've ever came across in my life. One of them did eventually, uh, one of the other two did get fired. He got caught with a boy in, I believe it was a public bathroom. But these guys used to focus on me all the time. We lived in a trailer park. We were dirt poor. They would come through there. They knew we had no money, no connections, anything. So the people that were in like my, not exactly age group, but socioeconomic level Mm -hmm. and they're like, they saw us as easy, easy targets. So, I was probably at war with these guys for two years before they arrested me and put me in prison for this. This was the guy responsible for sending me to mental institutions twice. You're talking about Jerry Driver? Him and his two partners, one of his partners were with the West Memphis Police Department when they found the bodies and the very first words out of his mouth before any investigation is done whatsoever. While they're pulling the bodies out of the water, the first words out of his mouth is Damien Eccles finally did it. He went and hurt someone.
1: Oh, wow. It, it's it's known through the documentaries and everything that the, the juvenile probation officer that sent you to the mental institution and all that was in was factory driver. Yeah. So your name was brought up at the crime scene. Right. So, like, where did you get, where did you hear that?
0: God. Who did he say it to? Do you remember? Did what? he admit it to Amy?
1: No, it's actually
0: not. He said, I can't remember exactly where it was. It's, I mean, it's either
1: on film or in the paperwork somewhere. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so right from the get go, right from when they're pulling the bodies out of the water, it was Damien Echols. Yeah. Finally did it. Yeah. Um, and I know that Jerry Driver then pointed him in, in your direction. How did, how did you get on was it, was it just targeting from just because that's what they did? Or how did you ever get on Jerry Driver's radar to begin with? Because he seemed like the one that was just like a dog on a bone with you. Yeah.
0: When I was uh, 15, 16 years old, somewhere in that age, uh, I had a girlfriend whose parents found out that we were having sex. They said, you're not allowed to see each other anymore. So, our brilliant idea was to run away from home together. Mm-hmm. So, that's what we did. Uh, Jerry Driver was, you know, of course, the head of the juvenile department. So, whenever they're looking for kids, uh, whether they ran away or whether they disappeared like the murder victims, he was usually... They didn't call him in this case because he wasn't in West Memphis. He was in Marion, which mm-hmm. is the next town over where I lived at. Right. So, we ran away from home. It was his department who found us and that was our introduction. So, I was about 15, 16 years old, something like that.
1: Once you were narrowed in on, and then, you know, as like I mentioned to you before we, before we started recording, you know, I study wrongful convictions to learn patterns and learn how do these things happen. And and I think that you had said once, um, in one of the documentaries that your case really isn't that unique as far as what happened to you guys. And I'm finding the same thing that it, it happens.
0: Yeah. Well, we talked to, there's a guy named Brian Stevenson who does, uh, he runs like the Southern Poverty Law Center down in the South. And, and I did a talk with him one time and he was saying that, you know, he does like extensive, extensive work. He dedicates his life to to looking at studying and working on the death penalty. And he said they now estimate that maybe as many as one out of every 10 people sentenced to death are innocent. And it's one of those things where if you found out one out of every 10 planes crashed, people would quit flying. Right. Nobody would fly anymore until they fixed fix the problem. Right. But it's like, since it's, you're talking about prison, you know, and we have this idea because of media and everything else, like, oh, if they arrest you, then you're, pr- you probably did something anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a reason to arrest you. They didn't just single you out for no reason. That's sort of the mentality that, that a lot of people have. So it seems like nobody's really that interested in fixing this because they don't have any vested interest in it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and that's, you know, that, that's not what I came here to talk to you about, but I I have a, I am a, a, a convert because of this, this type of work. So as I, I mentioned, we come from a, a very rural agricultural area, town of 2,200 people, right wing conservative area. And, and I was always very pro death penalty. You know, I, you know, when, when the politicians in Texas would get up and say, if you kill somebody here, we'll kill you back. And mm-hmm. it's like, hell yeah, the damn <laughs> criminals until I started doing this work and realized number one, how flawed. The system is. I mean, without even getting into the fact that it's not actually a deterrent and it's not cheaper and it doesn't, you know, all the all these different things that are wrong with the death penalty, in my opinion. But just to re- when, when you realize that the system can get it wrong mm-hmm. and does. Oh, yeah. Even if, like you said, even if it's one out of ten, if well, you happen to be
0: one of the ten. Exactly. And, and it's not just that person that you're murdering either because it is murder. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it's... I mean, think of their families, what you're doing to entire families out there. Whenever you're killing a member of a family that the entire family knows had nothing to do with this crime, then you have just destroyed an entire family's faith and belief in the, in, the entire American judicial system. Yeah. It's insane. And, and, you know, there's that aspect of it. And then there's also, I probably would have felt the same thing when I was young if I didn't have, I think most of the people who feel that way now, you know, that if you kill somebody, we're going to kill you back sort of thing. They're usually people that don't have any first-hand experience with the system. You know, they're people who are educated by fictional TV shows Mm -hmm. and things like that. The average IQ of people on death row is eighty. So there are, and that's the average. There's some that are even lower than that. You know, but we we we're sort of given this image that people on death row are like these, you know, insane, brilliant geniuses that are just cold-hearted Hannibal Lecter types. And it's not true at all. You're talking you know, when I was on death row, there was a guy in there who you could tell by listening to him talk something was wrong with him. His head had got run over by a garbage truck when he was a kid and had, you know, caused a big dent in his head. That's the sort of people that are on death row. You know, they got ready to execute one guy in Arkansas and uh, they asked him what he wanted for his last meal. And he said, pecan pie. They give him the pie. He eats half of it. When they come to get him to execute him, he wraps the other half up and says he's going to save that until after. That's the level of the mentality of the people that they're killing.
1: It's Just that's awful. Yeah. It's, just, it's it's awful. Yeah. So sorry that 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 really that just hit me really hard. Yeah. So, a guy that is, that is saving half his pie for after. Till after execution. they kill him. Yeah. Yeah. For after his execution, that and then and then certainly they claim that he was mentally competent enough. To, oh, of course. Yeah. Go through that. Of course In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So in your case, and I I approach every case that I do objectively and without bias at the beginning. And I I start from the beginning and I I go back to the investigation. And and there there will come a time when I take a side, so to speak. Uh, in, In your case, I'm... About five months into this investigation, and everything, and and the reason I'm sitting here, you know, with my wife is because I'm certain that the system got it wrong with you. So, just those talks about the death penalty and and, and everything else, it just to, to be sitting with someone, and I've sat with several people who've been in that that circumstance that it did get it wrong and what it did to your life, and 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 I want to get into with you how it's affected your life even after release. But before we do that, I want, to, I want to brush on one last question about the case, because, and it's the only other part of the case that I think that my listeners or viewers would have for you that is even relevant to you is many people have asked me already, and I'm sure have asked you too, why is it that you don't have a solid alibi for that night? People tell me all the time, well, clearly he's guilty. He doesn't have an alibi. So, what do you say to that?
0: I think if you were to ask any of those people, what were you doing on May 5th of 1993, they probably couldn't give you an answer either because it was just a nothing day to me. You know, it wasn't anything spectacular. There was nothing out of the ordinary. It was just another day in the trailer park. Right. It was just life in general. So, there wasn't anything about it that I would be, you know, looking at my watch and saying... Okay. At, you know, 312, I'm at the laundromat and at mm-hmm. four, 415, I'm at Walmart. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't keeping track of stuff like that because I never in a million years thought I'm going to have to, you know, explain to people where I was, you know, three months previously because there's going to be a murder happen that I'm going to be connected to. That was the last thing in the world that was on my mind. It's, just, it was just normal life for me. And, and, you know, now, you know, a, a lot of, the stuff that I did do during that day, uh, the attorneys I had at the time and investigators since have pretty much pieced a lot of it together as well as they could. But, you know, for me, still that was like 25 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. So I don't even remember, you know, most of what they figured out that I was doing that day, you know, where they said I went to like get a prescription filled or something. You know, it was, it was two and a half decades ago. I right. don't remember most
1: of that. Well, even, even when it was a month ago. Exactly, I th- I think to myself always like what was I doing on four weeks ago today? Exactly. At what time and and, and everything and do you know who knows who knows exactly what they were doing and when and can timestamp guilty people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know the the theory and it's one of the things that I find so preposterous about the case is so the theory is that you're a maniacal psychopath that kills these boys and does a good enough job of body concealment that almost gets away with it Mm -hmm. extremely and is able to control two other people to keep them quiet about it the whole time. Mm -hmm. You're a maniacal genius, criminal genius to get all this done, but never occurred to you to log down where I was. Establish an exactly Right. But yeah, so I mean, I I get it. And I, and truth be told, I knew the answer to that before I asked it because it's the same answer that every other case I've ever worked Mm -hmm. has been. Yeah, you know, when they, when someone gets questioned about something that happened even a week ago or a couple, of, you know, when you get pinned down, you know, for you, I, I mean, I'm assuming, did you even remember when you did when you kind of got pinned down on it? Did did you try to think of try to give them something? I tried, you
0: know, and that's that's kind of fallen into a trap whenever you do that because you know I could remember little things like okay, I remember talking to this person on the phone and I think I talked to him at seven o'clock. And then they go and talk to the person, and they say, yeah, I talked to him that day, but I didn't talk to him until 9 o'clock. So then they come back, and they're like, you know, why did you lie to us? I didn't lie. That's what time I thought it was. You know, I didn't log it down because I didn't care. You know, it was just a normal day to
1: me. Yeah. And that's the, as we saw with Jesse, Miss Kelly, the 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 trap you get into when you start Mm -hmm. answering. There's a reason people say don't talk to him. Exactly. Don't say a damn word because you start start trying to help trying to give them information, and then it ends up biting you in the well, ass. Well,
0: and they also feed you information. And then by the time you get to trial, it's like it's become distorted and twisted until they didn't tell you that. You told them that. Mm-hmm. But they'll it'll, it'll be done in a way like they'll say, well, do you think the bodies could have been in the water because of this reason? And you, Okay, sure, yeah, maybe. So when you go to trial, they're like, Well, he told us he thought the bodies were in the water because of this. Like, no, I didn't. You told me that. I just agreed with you.
1: Yeah. Is is that what happened specifically? Exactly. Yep. A lot of them feeding you information. Mm -hmm. Covering a case like yours that has a little millions of people that know about it and are interested in it and have studied it to an extent anyway you have 95% of people out there that are very supportive of you and Jesse and Jason. Mm -hmm. And you got 5% of people that are, that are insistent that you're, you're guilty, which people think what they want, but out of that 5%, there's about 5% of them that are very vocal about it in every platform that they can, they can get that information out. So one of the, and and instead of me answering, I wanted to give you the opportunity to answer. People ask me, well, why haven't, Damien, or you specifically, why hasn't Damien done anything to try to find the real killer since he got out? Well, first off, the
0: prosecutor gave us his word. He gave us his word whenever we took this deal that any information that we brought to him, any new evidence we brought to him, anything we brought to him at all that he would be willing to look at, and if he saw any validity to it, he would reopen the case. None of that has proven true. You know, we've brought in things like uh, even new eyewitnesses. Who put someone else with the victims within something like an hour of the time that they came up missing. Still doesn't matter, doesn't care. I don't have a badge. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a, a attorney general. I'm not a judge. I'm not a prosecutor. I can't make these people do anything. You know, and, and not only that, but there's so many different reasons. One is they have a vested interest in not reopening this case. People ask me over and over, what do you think it would take to get this case reopened? And my answer is, you have to wait for some of these people to either retire or get voted out of office and new people to come in and and fill those positions who don't have a reason to keep this covered up, who aren't going to have to admit that they let a murderer walk free and sentenced an innocent person to death. Mm -hmm. They'd know if they have to admit that their careers are over. So really what it comes down to, we'll have to wait until those people are out of those positions. New people who don't have an interest in keeping it covered up come in and then maybe they'll listen to some of the new stuff. It's also, you know, people who say that usually have no idea what's going on in this case. You know, they think if something's happening in this case, they're going to see it on TV. Right. And you're not. You know, this is a, what is it now? 25 year old murder case? Mm-hmm. This is the last thing the news is interested in. You know, they're focused on Donald Trump and whatever's going on in North Korea and everything else. I'm, I'm, not even old news to these people anymore. You know, whatever we do, they're not going to cover it in the media. Just because you don't see it on TV doesn't mean nothing's happening.
1: And you guys have done, I know you've turned over new evidence to them, and have you guys done any forensic testing or anything or attempted to since your release? If somebody went to this extreme one time, this level of
0: violence, Mm -hmm. you know, they killed three eight-year-old kids, then it's probably not the only time that they've done something. Right. So, a, a lot of it has been looking into other cases with similarities to this one in hopes of, you know,
1: finding a link
0: mm-hmm. that will lead us to something.
1: Right. And also, in the documentary, they put a lot of weight into the, you know, the hairs tested from the crime scene. And so I've had people say, you know, they just tested those hairs. They. You know, and they they think they know who that might belong to and that's it. But the reality is you guys did a shit ton of oh, DNA Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. There's stuff that people have no idea about. Like, for example, um, one person that we suspected uh, may have had something to do with the murders. We went to the people who live in the house that they lived in where it happened now and asked them, could we do testing inside the house? Mm-hmm. Sure enough, uh, blood was found under the linoleum in the kitchen. But it was so old and so degraded by that point that they couldn't match it to anybody. They couldn't say who it did or didn't belong to. Mm-hmm. We had suspected also that the murders weren't actually carried out at that site, that that was a dump site, that they were killed somewhere else and maybe thro- you know dr- mm-hmm. thrown there. So w- somebody that we suspected had a pickup truck that disappeared. They sold it like a couple of days after the murders. Mm-hmm. And it just disappears off the face of the earth. Years later, Lori was finally able to track it down. Had like all the VIN numbers filed off of it and everything. Mm-hmm. They did testing on it. Sure enough, they found blood under the front seat, but again, it was so old and so
1: degraded they couldn't say who it matched. No DNA profile. Exactly. Yeah. So the so the the idea that you've been doing nothing and that your team has been doing nothing is is ridiculous. And exactly. I, and I've heard from from speaking with some of the people involved with the case and witnesses that have asked me off the record, but I know from one in particular even agreed because of some of the work with your guys' team to be hypnotized to try to mm-hmm. remember um, yep. remember things that happened back then.
0: I mean, we have tried pretty much everything that we can think of, mm-hmm. you know, it, from from doing stuff like that. You know, there was a time when Laurie was out actually digging through people's garbage for cigarette butts to try to match DNA to. Right. Uh, everything from that to the the hypnotism thing to... I swear we've done pretty much everything we could think of, and we just can't get any traction. Is there anything you're afraid of testing? nothing you know it's it's from the beginning. It's the same reason I talk to the cops. It's the same reason I talk to the media. It's the same reason I'm doing this now. I've always said I don't have anything to hide. You know I may be weird. I may say weird things sometimes that people think you know that guy's a fruit loop or what have you, but I have nothing to hide. You know, there is no part of my life that you dig into that is going to connect me to ever hurting anyone, much less three eight-year-old kids in West Memphis, Arkansas.
1: So along those lines, what do you, so what are your feelings on, I mean, obviously you're sitting here talking to me, but how do you feel about, not even specifically us with the, with the podcast, but relaunching this investigation by anyone in the way we're intending to do it in a very public way? What are your, what are your feelings on, I guess, what we're doing here?
0: Oh, I'm a
1: 110%
0: for it. You know, anything what's, like I said, we've tried everything that we can possibly try. We've thrown everything we've got at this case and and we've gotten nowhere with it. So anything that somebody else brings to this, any effort, any energy, any time, anything that people are willing to put into this, we are a hundred percent not only for, but grateful for. Uh, it's not pleasant. It's not fun. You know, I, I always tell people, imagine the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your entire fucking life. And then you have to go through that same thing every single day for 20 years. And then after that 20 years is over, it's the only thing people have any interest in talking to you about. Mm-hmm. So it's not fun at all. But at the same time, you know, I want my name cleared. I know Jason wants his name cleared. Pretty sure Jesse does. If you talk to him and nothing we've done is as, had any effect. So I'm all for anything that anybody else wants to do.
1: What have the last six years been like for you? We've we've kind of touched on it a little bit how, you know, you're kind of having to relive this with me right now. And you've had to, and I know when you first got out, you had to do, you did so many interviews and so much media and all that stuff. And it's just reliving it. But, but there's the documentaries and it's no, no fault to the documentaries. They have to take in a, in a video format and edit that down to a reasonable Mm -hmm. amount of time. Right a couple of hours. So what people see in the documentary is the glit and the glare and, you know, the, the sexy part of mm-hmm. the case, but the reality is, and we've been here for a couple of hours just chatting with you and Lori in your apartment and getting to know you a little bit. And What what have the last six years been like since the camera shut off and you're just living life?
0: To be honest, there are times when it's been uh, kind of hellish. I, I think I've only started to find any sort of joy or happiness or anything else probably in the last year. You know, I I, we were talking about it before we started, you know, taping just how I can't even remember the first year that I was out of prison. You know, not only was I in prison for almost 20 years, but almost the last decade of that was spent in solitary confinement. So, I went from nearly a decade in solitary confinement to being on the streets of Manhattan literally overnight with no sort of preparation, nothing you know and i and it, it wasn't like i stepped out in back into the world that i left from you know right. when when i went to prison you know phones were still things that were attached to the wall by cords mm-hmm. uh credit cards were for rich people you know it, computers the last time i had seen a computer with 1986 and, and i always say it was uh It was basically a glorified typewriter that rich people use. Like, it Mm -hmm. wasn't connected to the internet or anything. You would just type something in and then half an hour later, it would slowly print it out on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. So, I'm having to learn human interaction as well as just how to survive with with things like, you know, it's, it's the weirdest thing trying to make people understand what triggers like the PTSD and what doesn't because... You know, I could deal with things like I can remember we're on the subway one day and, you know, you always have crazy people on the subway and some guy goes, you know, ballistic screaming, if you step on my feet, I'm going to kill you or something like that. And then when we get off the the train, Lord's like, are you okay?" Yeah. You know, I saw that every day for 20 years. That doesn't mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. But then I would go into a blind panic when I'm standing in line at the bank trying to figure out how to use a debit card stuff like that is what really just grinds you down and destroys you. It, it I you know, it's it's been absolutely horrific in a lot of ways. You know, you you even even little things like uh say you go to the store to get milk and you walk down the aisle and there's like 50 different kinds of milk. And and I'm supposed to figure out which one of these it is that I like or which one of these that I'm supposed to get or whatever it is. And it's, you know, in in West Memphis, Arkansas, back in 1993, I didn't have to deal with anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was pretty much, you know, we were so poor, we just spent the days trying to make it to the next day. That was it. And, And then I come out here into this world where, you know, it's just like everything is happening all the time. And you're completely... Just submerged and immersed in it in a city of of what now? It's creeping up to like maybe over eight million people, close to nine million people. It was uh, th- there's no word big enough to describe the damage that it did to me. You know, even when I'm saying something like it's devastating, that still doesn't even come close to, to what it did to me. I, you know, I would have to ask Lori sometimes five times a day, what day of the week is this? Where are we at? Where are we headed to? Where are we going? It was—it really was like I was an invalid that had to be nursed back to health.
1: You didn't—you didn't have the one thing that uh, that struck me with my friend and and my our uh, another season uh, at eight when I visited him and spent some time with him in prison. Is that he doesn't get to make choices?
0: Exactly. Exactly. You don't decide what you're going to wear. You don't decide what you're going to eat. You don't decide when you're going to sleep. You don't decide when they're going to beat you. You are pretty much just sitting there waiting for the system to do whatever they want to do to you whenever they want to do to you. And you, you make absolutely no decisions in the process. So you walk into a world
1: where all of a sudden you realize it kind of in the reverse way that I did with, well, almost in the same way, you know, when I I remember the first time I ever visited someone in a prison was Ed. And I remember when it was over, I had, uh, I don't know if you could do this when you had visitation in in Arkansas, but we we could give the inmates that we were meeting with like food or drink. You could go down to the end of the hallway, mm-hmm. and pass it to the guard. And, yes, yeah. It, we laugh about it now, but it was a funny story because I I didn't know that. So I'm I'm sitting there and I'm I'm just talk- I'm not interviewing or anything. I'm just talking, just visiting him, and I and I open up, a, I grab a diet coke from the the pop machine. I'm eating. And he's he says. Oh, God, it's just- I sure do like Coke. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah, me too. Yeah. This time it's like, it's like, and he just, he, he's just hitting at me, right? Like, like, yeah, I really like, I really like that Coke. Coke is one of my favorite things to drink. I'm like, yeah. But finally I was like, man, I'd give you some of like, I don't know what he's like. Oh, you can, you can just <laughs> pass it down there, you know? And so we laughed about it and everything. But then when I was, I remember when I was leaving, it was just like watching him. It was like, he had to go back and. He had to get strip searched and had to go back. And, and, and when I was walking out to the parking lot with, uh, with Mike and I thought, man, what do we, where do you want to go eat dinner? You know, where do we want to go from here? And it was just, and there was that thing about the choices that yeah. struck me. It's like, God, he doesn't get to choose. Exactly. I mean, you, you forget stuff in there that most people
0: wouldn't even know that you could forget. You know, I, like I would see pizza commercials on TV and I knew that at one time pizza had been my favorite food. But I couldn't remember what it tastes like anymore. You know, I hadn't had it in 20 years. So, it was just like this vague, abstract concept to me. It wasn't like even a physical memory anymore. By the time I got out, I had reached a point where I could no longer remember what it was like to exist anywhere but in that prison. Do you ever get over that? Remains to be seen. You know, it's one of those things you, it's, it's, you don't get used to being in prison mm-hmm. in a single day. And you don't get used to being out of prison in a single day. There are times whenever I look back on it, and it seems like something that happened a million years ago, or something that was in a bad dream. And there are times when this seems like the dream, and I'm going to wake up back in that prison cell. Mm-hmm. It it go both seem equally real, equally valid scenarios. Yeah. You know, just for the record, uh, the one something that just crossed my mind. Um, I had to go get some blood work done. Uh, recently just getting like a routine checkup and uh, they they tell you fast before they take the blood. So I hadn't eaten like all night long and then all the next morning and then whenever they took the blood, I passed all the way out. Like I hit the floor. Uh, the nurse started screaming for somebody to come and throw water on me to wake me up. Lori comes into the room and threw water on me Whenever I opened my eyes, I could not even figure out who Lori was, who the nurse was, where I was at. The only thing I could think was, this must be some part of the prison that I haven't seen before.
1: That's that's the level that it. That was recently, yeah, six years after you. That was that was probably six months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can. I mean, I mean, luckily you have Lori to (laughs) keep helping you through this.
0: Most people don't have anybody. You know, you've been in prison for. 20-25 20-25 years, most people have you know, moved on, forgot you even exist mm-hmm. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky Lucky?
1: In line at the deli, I
0: guess Aha, in my dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's
1: the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: With LinkedIn Jobs,
1: we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches
0: your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified
1: candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. One thing that I wanted to uh, address too. So you do or you don't share a bank account with Johnny Depp. I do not.
0: You know, that's that's one of the things, too. It's like here you get out here. And keep in mind, when I walked out of that prison, I did not have one single penny in my pocket. Right. I had been in prison for 18 years and 76 days. I didn't have so much as a suit of clothes to change into. I had nothing. I would have been homeless if not for people helping us out. So it's, it's become sort of a, a thing where I don't like asking people for anything anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to stand on my own feet. I want to be able to survive in this world without leaning on other people. But people will come to me all the time and say, you know, it's like this constant barrage of would you ask Johnny Depp this? Would you ask Peter Jackson that? Would you get this message to Eddie Vedder and see if he might be interested in this? I'm like, "No. <laughs> no, no. I'm not going to do that."
1: I'm trying this. to go back to normal life, not that forever well and that's what you know a lot of people so many and and you've helped tear a lot of those misperceptions conceptions down just in these few minutes we've been talking uh but that's one of them is I, i've heard people you know damien is you know he's he's living in the lap of luxury and has made millions off of this you know and i'm and you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and, and very very nice little one-bedroom apartment. I live in
0: Harlem, which is the poor part of New York. Right. You know, it, it's it's um. When you live here, you pretty much work twenty-four-seven to make rent uh-huh. because everything here is so incredibly expensive. Uh, but you know, that's that's how Lori and I both spend our lives. We are. Working to try to make ends meet, just like everybody else does. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I can sign Johnny Depp's name to a check every, right. you know, every <laughs> time I want something. We just live normal daily life here.
1: And the last thing that that I would like, if you want, if if you want to to give you the opportunity, if you want to, you have the, a concern for those boys too. That it's not just about justice for you mm-hmm. and Jesse and Jason. For all three of you.
0: Well, I think, you know, you're talking about, like I said a while ago, we've been looking into other cases trying to find similarities that perhaps will give us clues into this one that we could tie to it. But, you know, keep in mind that those three victims may not have only even been the only three victims in this case. There may have very well been others that just haven't been tied to it. So, you're talking about not only bringing Closure to the victim's families for, for you know, three horrendous murders. But it, it could possibly even save someone else from going through the same thing or bring closure to even more cases. You know, this I, I honestly do think just from the people who've looked at this case, uh, you know, the experts who have told us things like, um, you know, someone who does something like this. This isn't like a one time thing, someone who's willing to go to this extent. It's not like they're just going to do this and say, OK, stop. I quit that was enough. so we've we've met with the victims' families, we've had dinner with the victims' families, we've did question and answer sessions, you know traveling around with the documentaries with them, and we've seen firsthand the level of pain these people are going through. you know these people are completely and absolutely shattered. Nobody has moved on from this case. Not only the children that were murdered, their families are still living in hell. We're still living in hell. I don't think there's one single person connected to this case, other than maybe somebody who might have had something to do with the murder, who doesn't want to see the actual perpetrator caught, tried, and put in prison.
1: I agree, and it's it's intuitive that you've seen that too, because one thing that I noticed is, and after my first trip back from Arkansas, and I talked to I talked to Pam Hobbs or Pam Hicks and John Mark Byers, and, you know, I as, as I started to reach out and research everybody on every side, it's like, this just, this is just, case is just an atom bomb that just dropped and just yes. destroyed everyone in its it did. wake. It, and not just, not
0: just everybody connected with it, it really did take a toll on the entire town. It was like it stopped life dead in its tracks in that town.
1: Right. Yeah, that's something, I mean, it was... A murder that was, you know, it was clearly going to be national news for something like that in any case. But for a town like West Memphis, never seen anything like that before. Most places have. You know, and I always think people
0: that say, oh, what are you, you know, what are you, why are you investigating that case? That case was closed 20 years ago. We, we know that they did it. We know Damian Eccles is guilty. Well, if you believe that, then why don't you want other people digging into it? Why don't you want that proven then? Why don't you want to see what evidence that people come up with when they're digging into? You know, like I've always said, I got nothing to hide. Look at everything, dig into everything, test everything, talk to everybody. I have no reason to stop any investigation whatsoever. I think the only person that would want to stop something like that is someone who has something that perhaps they don't want coming out.
1: The notorious West Memphis 3 case is one of the most controversial and hotly debated cases in American history. Millions are convinced of Damien Echols, Jesse Kelly, and Jason Baldwin's innocence. But at the same time, there are many, many people who are convinced of their guilt. Personally, after over a year of investigating this case as my full-time job, there is no doubt in my mind that Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers and Michael Moore were absolutely not murdered by three teenagers. And one thing that has always strengthened that opinion is the fact that the three men who were convicted have never shied away from any type of forensic testing. In fact, they've begged for it. Now, contrast that to other individuals who may be considered suspects by some, who put up every roadblock possible and consistently fight to stop any further investigation. And I find myself far more suspicious of the latter. Now, you just heard Damien on the record willing to submit to any and all forensic testing. He's also expressed that he welcomes any new investigations. So next, we're going to find out his co-defendant stance on the matter. When I fly down to Texas and interview Jason Baldwin. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and Sound Engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInAsong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. I personally can be found on social media at Truth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.